Welcome to another episode of the Spoon Mob Podcast. This week, I am joined by sommelier Peter Andrews, who is also the owner and founder of Culture Wine Co., which is based out of San Francisco, California. Peter founded this business, this organization, to really highlight South African wine. Nobody's really bringing in a whole bunch of South African wine to the U.S., and that's kind of his aim, motivation, highlighting these different producers within the state of South Africa and country of South Africa and all the different territories and everything, just stuff that people haven't really encountered that much. So he just started it recently, earlier this year, kind of officially launched. Uh, There's an online shop, there's a wine club, all that kind of stuff. And as you might remember from a couple episodes back, with uh, sommelier Kelly Ford Lau, and she was talking about just the Las Vegas wine scene and how importing and distribution with wine kind of goes and how it's very, very restrictive. And she had to get an e-commerce license and everything. Peter's based out of California, so he gets that kind of license. California is kind of that golden license state, right? That's why a lot of wine companies are set up there because they can distribute, they can import, they can do everything. Peter's able to do all that stuff. Uh, He goes to South Africa multiple times a year to just kind of introduce himself to different people that he'd like to carry their wine and and make partnerships and relationships and everything too as well. So you can follow him on Instagram. His handle is at Peter underscore wine. And then also you can follow Culture Wine Co. on Instagram. It's at Culture Wine Co. All one word, no periods, underscores, anything like that. And you can visit the website. Um, You can shop the online bottle shop. There's gift packs that they have. There's uh, the wine club too as well that you can join. So a bunch of stuff that you can look up. And then also for over the course of kind of the next month, you can use a promo code that Peter was very generous enough to kind of introduce, you know, coming on the podcast and everything. So when you go to check out for 20% off all the stuff in the wine store there, just enter SpoonMob20, all caps, and there's a promo code that'll run from basically as soon as this episode drops through the end of January, January 31st. So Uh, If you're interested in getting some South African wine, you can use that promo code for 20% off. It'll ship right to your door. So pretty thankful, pretty awesome that Peter decided to kind of integrate that into the episode. It was kind of his idea. Pretty awesome to be able to do that and offer that to you guys and the listeners and everything if you're interested in getting some South African wine. So you can follow us on Instagram too as well at SpoonMob website, SpoonMob.com, profiles, photos, all that stuff is on the website. Make sure to subscribe, follow to the podcast, whatever platform app that you use to listen to podcasts. We're on all of them. Big ones, Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon, YouTube. Uh, We have a YouTube channel too as well. So the episodes hit YouTube a week after they hit all the podcast apps and players. But just follow or subscribe, whatever button that that app uses. All new episodes will drop straight in your feed, releasing new episodes on Thursdays at 1 a.m. Eastern is when they drop. So Pacific time, that'd be Wednesday at 10 p.m. If you kind of move to different parts of the world, that might be like Friday morning. If you're overseas, depending on the time difference and everything like that. But that is it for the updates for this week. So without any further delay, here's my conversation with sommelier Peter Andrews, who's the owner and founder of Culture Wine Co. based out of San Francisco, California. Thanks again for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of your day to, to jump on here. So first, uh, learned about you through Instagram, popped up, I think, or originally on like a recommended person, just following a bunch of different people, wine, hospitality and whatnot. And then obviously earlier this year, you launched Culture Wine Co., which is focused on South African wines, which is a pretty unique concept. I think you might be the only one doing that or, or close to it anyways. So I want to get into, you know, launching that, what your goals and aspirations are with that. 
but I always like to start at the beginning with everybody. So how did you kind of first get involved with wine? Because you went to culinary school, you like externed in Italy, you got a culinary arts degree, but then you somewhere along the way wind up going into wine. So were you originally looking to be a chef and working in restaurants and then it kind of pivoted? Like what's the story there? So yeah, I first got into cooking when I was a teenager a little bit out of necessity because I had I lived with a, a sick father. And so it was kind of learn how to cook or eat frozen meals forever. My older brother was a chef as well. So he kind of guided me through like learning very basic techniques. And I ended up in a vocational school during high school. And that brought me into culinary school because I, I did think I was going to be a chef. My brother and I always had this dream of like opening uh, a true farm to table restaurant. And this was in the early, like 2003, 2004, we were talking about this before, you know, the single threads of the world, you know, came to be. And now that's like a really prominent and incredible thing in our, in our world. And so I went to cooking school thinking that would be kind of the path I would take and get into fine dining and, and eventually, you know, start this thing with him. And I gained a lot of experience, but and which brought me to living in Italy. And I was living in Friuli, Venezia, Giulia, cooking in this 14th century castle and, you know, working 80 hours a week, six days a week, two shifts, lunch and dinner every day. And it was just me and two other chefs. And so we were, we were really busy doing everything by hand. And it was there that I realized that although I loved cooking, I don't think I could do that long-term. I was fortunately just a 45 minute drive from Colio. And so that I went on one of my days off, I went to Colio and went to a winery. And uh, that was a friend of one of the chefs that I worked with. And I just was hooked at like, at that point, I realized that I wanted to transition into wine. I kind of never looked back. So you went to Johnson and Wales. Was there a particular reason why you chose there? Because I mean, you do all your degrees. I mean, you can teach there later on too, but was there a specific reason why you chose them over any other schools? Um, well, to be honest, I was a, pretty much just a stoner growing up. It was the only school I applied to, number one. Number two, I was very adamantly against SATs and standardized testing. Johnson & Wales didn't require that at the time. <laughs> but knowing that I think also Johnson & Wales and the Culinary Institute of America are arguably the best two cooking schools in the country. And so... I felt very fortunate to have gotten in and had this very like clear direction that I wanted to take. Even though I was definitely like a little bit wild at the time, I, I knew that cooking was where I wanted to go. And so choosing Johnson Wells felt very natural. It was only a five hour drive from my home in Virginia because I went to the Charlotte campus for a couple of years. It felt like a natural transition and it was definitely the best decision uh, I could have made. They had a very almost militaristic style. Like if your chef coat wasn't pressed perfectly, you got kicked out of class. If you get kicked out of class twice, you fail and you have to start again. And it was quite, it, it actually whipped me into shape in the best way. So I feel like that two years in that culinary program really like kind of straightened me out in, in a really good way. Looking back on it, I asked this to anybody who kind of goes through culinary school in this aspect, was it worth it? Do you think people should go to culinary school or everybody's kind of got a, a different opinion based on their experience. And then also kind of how the world is today. You know, there's some people spend that money on travel, stage as many restaurants as you can, instead of, you know, paying tuition fee and everything. Some people, it was really beneficial and it opened a lot of doors for them with the externship program and all that stuff. So if someone asked you if they should go to culinary school based on your experience, what would you tell them? Yeah, it's such a good question. I mean, I feel like the, the broader question of like, is college worth it today? 
is such a big and important one that we're all thinking about. Obviously, it's super expensive. It was not cheap even when I was in school and it's not gotten cheaper. <laughs> I do think like personally, I think it's worth it and, it and it was worth it for me. And the I think the biggest reason was because Johnson Wearable is really focused on kind of creating a more rounded out individual. Even though my associate's degree was in culinary arts, I was taking WSET classes as an 18-year-old. They required that. So I was doing intro. There were business courses. There were accounting courses. There were public speaking courses. And then when I got into my bachelor's degree, it was more business focused. And even my MBA at Johnson Wells was obviously all around business. And so I kind of always had the mentality personally that I wanted to be more rounded. A, knowing I wanted to own a restaurant, that helped me knowing I needed to have some business acumen. Beyond that, I felt as if I always wanted to hedge my bets. I knew cooking was hard even as an 18-year-old, even though I did think no matter what, that was going to be my role. I did kind of have the thought that I needed to have more under my belt than, than cooking. Fortunately, I did that. And so when you go to cooking school, if you have the mentality that you want to learn more than just cuisine, I think it's very helpful. I think if you know you're going to be a chef, you want to cook and you want to have like your hands dirty and be involved in the food every day, then yeah, I, I could definitely see the stage route and working your way up in kitchens being totally fine as well. Part of the requirement was to take WSET level one. Yeah. So I was 18 in like a fine dining class and was taking WSET one. Like I, <laughs> I remember so vividly, like I grew up in a pretty poor household and did not have wine on our table. We had it like on Thanksgiving at best. And it was like a jug of, you know, Carlo Rossi. My experience with wine did not start until I was 18, which I think for most Americans is still quite young. Johnson Wells was really fortunate to have a, a special license that allowed under 21 year old students to, to drink at, like as a tasting, obviously. And so I was in class with this incredible teacher who this Italian teacher who was pronouncing a Valpolicella and Amarone and like all these Italian in words I had never even in regions I'd never even heard of. It took me like a year just to learn how to pronounce them. <laughs> it expanded my world so much in the best way because it, A, I'm learning how to cook and learning how to do something that's, I think every human should learn how to do, right? Like it's, even if you don't go into cooking permanently, having a degree in culinary arts is the most useful thing you could possibly have. Like I cook every single day, right? But then I started expanding my world in the most like beautiful way through these, this WSET program and through the wine courses, because I started learning like a different language, learning a different region, learning different grapes, different flavors, different cultures. And I think that like totally planted the seed for where I am today. You get your culinary degree and then kind of working towards your bachelor's. But in 2009, I think you wind up in Italy where you're kind of there for like six months. So was that part of an externship program that you were required to do? Or was that something that you sought out on your own? And why did you want to go to Italy versus what other options were available? I've always loved Italian cuisine. Cooking school is definitely rooted in French technique. However, there's something about the simplicity of Italian cuisine and the quality of the ingredients, like speaking, that always really pulled me in. I don't think I was ever like a super talented chef. So I don't think I ever would have done well in the like super avant-garde kind of tweezer-like cuisine. Um, but I think as I got into the Italian side of my calling and where I really was the most happy, I transferred after my culinary degree in Charlotte to the Providence campus of Johnson & Wales, which is like their headquarters for my junior year through my master's. And I was working at this restaurant on um, Federal Hill in Providence, which is like the Italian area 
it's a it's a wild area. It's kind of like where the mob was centralized, and there's some wild stories in that that place. And so I was making the pasta there. They, they had this this place called Zuma. There was like a 20 different homemade pastas on the list. So in the morning, I would go in and make all the pasta. And then in the evening, I would uh, serve tables so I could actually make some money. And then in between, I would take I would have my my classes. And so the chef that I was working for used to cook at this restaurant in Friuli. It was called Restaurante San Michele. He called me one day. I was like writing my, my final paper for the end of my junior year. And he called me and said, Giuseppe needs uh, someone for the summer. Do you want to go? And of course said yes. I bought my ticket the next day and was gone a week later. Like I had never taken an Italian class. I didn't pay close attention to my Spanish classes growing up. <laughs> I remember landing and being so nervous. It was my first ever international trip. It was my first serious trip of any matter uh, ever in my life. And so I remember landing, navigating the train system, not speaking any Italian at all not even having taken a book with me about <laughs> Italian language. And I remember the the guy who picked me up to bring me to the restaurant. He, you know, he said, buongiorno. And I replied with bonjour, right? I was like so nervous and had no idea what to even do. So it's kind of at that point I realized, I was like, oh my God, I have so much is going to happen to me in these next six months. And so, yeah, that's that's how it all came to be. Was the language barrier the biggest challenge during that six month stint that you were there or was it you were working at a one michelin star restaurant so i think it's a restaurante san michelle so or was that like the biggest challenge the environment going from culinary school to an italian michelin star restaurant like for your first yeah it was crazy i mean fortunately like i had been working in kitchens for a while i started cooking full-time at like 17 and even through cooking school, I worked full time from my freshman year all the way through grad school and obviously through today. So I was fortunate to have a, a fair amount of experience. But I think, yeah, the language barrier was definitely quite strong. <laughs> There's a couple of things like the, I remember I first landed, I met the chef. He served me like the most delicious pasta I've ever had. And this place, this, you know, as I said, it's in a 14th century castle on top of this little hill. You know, in Italy, all the castles are obviously like strategically placed to be in the safest spot of these little villages. And so this little town called Fogania, which is about 25 um, kilometers from Udine, which is kind of like the capital city of that area. It was just like panoramic views. On one side was the Alps and the other was just like just plains all the way to the sea. It's like outrageous. I remember sitting there like, holy shit, I'm living here, right? Like eating this pasta, blowing my mind. And then he's like, when I, as soon as I was done, he's like, okay, go take a nap because you're cooking tonight. All right. And like right into the fire. And so, yeah, like starting to learn the chef did not speak very much English at the time. There was fortunately a guy my age, uh, Filippo, who did speak pretty good English. And so he was definitely the bridge and very helpful. And then, man, like if you want to learn language, if you just throw yourself into the fire and you're in a situation where you're only hearing that language, you will learn it fast. And so I learned it at least kitchen language very fast, but definitely had a lot of stumbles. There was a time where Filippo was on a vacation and it was just myself and Giuseppe making food for 70 to 100 covers a night of you know high quality multi-course cuisine. We were just getting our asses kicked. I remember he gave me a recipe for a dessert and all it had was ingredients. It had no method of prep. I just kind of assumed based on what I knew the recipe would be, how I should do it. And I totally screwed it up. We're so close to service. We were basically going to be without a dessert for the night, which is like 
not acceptable at all. And I remember Giuseppe just kind of like hitting his head on the metal cabinets, just like dropping the the worst terms you could use in Italian. And I just remember like, oh my God, I have to like, I need to learn Italian so much better like now. So this never happens again. And uh, <laughs> being in that that type of situation makes you learn it very fast. When you're doing this, working at this mission starred restaurant, you wind up going to the vineyard site and everything. And that's kind of where you make your pivot into wine. But was there a moment that you knew, not just that you wanted to focus on wine, but you knew that cooking, being in the kitchen, it wasn't going to happen for you? Like that self-reflection moment? It kind of slowly came over the course of that summer or that six month stint rather. It's obviously a very hard profession and it requires a lot of passion, which I had, and I've never shied away from hard work. But I realized that I wanted more balance in my life and I wanted to be able to experience the things around me more. But I was working six days a week and 80 hours a week and I only had one day to experience it. And fortunately, I was in my 20s, so I had like endless energy. So my day off, I could still go for it. But like if I was doing that now in my mid 30s, I would be like dead on that day off, you know? And I could kind of see the writing on the wall. My brother, who was a chef, you know, he he passed away in 2011. And I think cooking really ran him into the ground. But I saw how hard he worked and how hard it was for him to get ahead. So I think that kind of like played back into like when I was in cooking school to hedge the bets a little bit. And then I think when I was in Italy, it played into the realization that I needed to do something different. I think that, like I said, the day at the winery, it was Floriano, which is the, the name of the family in, in Colio. San Floriano. I remember just tasting the wines. And I think that that was the aha moment. I guess if I had to go to one specific area, it would be that. And I think tasting Friolo, tasting Ribola Gialla, Schiopatino, and these like Refosco, these grapes that only come from that area, it just hooked me. And I think there was something about the way that the grapes in Italy in particular, there was just like individual grapes per region each of those grapes had an incredible story about how they kind of proliferated there or maybe introduced there by Romans or something like that. And I just kind of found myself really hooked to the storytelling element of it. And um, I think it was, yeah, I think it was that day in, in Colio that really like sealed the deal that I was going to come back, finish this stage, which by the way, I made 500 euros a month <laughs> during that. Uh, so I was making like two euros an hour. I realized I was going to come back, get my WSCT three diploma and like really go for it and go all in on the wine side. So when you get back, you know, 2010, you get your bachelor's degree in food service management. So you finish that up, but then you also pass the WSCT level three examined wine. You pass society of wine educators, certified specialist of wine. You pass the society of wine educators, certified specialist of spirits. And then also I think like level two spirits as well, all in like this May, June timeframe. Were you purposely taking four exams simultaneously? Did it just kind of overlap? Like, how did that all happen? Because that's like doing the wine stuff alone is enough to just then adding like the spirit stuff on top of it too, as well. So how did all that work? Well, the WSC, it just kind of certifications, you're kind of at the mercy of when these certifying bodies give the exams. So sometimes you just get forced to like, if you want to do it and you don't want to wait six months or nine months or something to take an exam, sometimes it comes up fast. So that's one element of it. The other element is 
I didn't have like, again, I didn't come from any money and I had no money. I didn't make any money in Italy. <laughs> so the way that I was able to get the society wine educators certifications was volunteering. And so I would volunteer at their annual conferences, uh, take exams. And so it just kind of worked out that this is how I would get involved. A, I would learn more. I would meet people. I would take exams. And so it worked out that way. The certified specialist of wine was incredibly challenging. I remember having a, a hell of a time with that because it's so much knowledge, such a short exam. So you could get asked so many different things. But yeah, sometimes it just shapes up that way. So definitely have a lot of sympathy for those who are in the certification route because you you really are at the mercy of of their scheduling sometimes. Which of those exams was the most difficult? I think the WSET3 because there's the tasting component, the um, difficulty between two and three, like the leap in, in difficulty between two and three in the WSET is, is significant. And I remember that being extremely hard. It felt as if it was like really getting into the granularity of wine, really being able to explain it in a much more detailed way obviously being able to taste it and like honing in on your your muscle memory of tasting right so to me like i always compare tasting to like free throw shooting and it's like if you want to get really good at free throw shooting you shoot 100 free throws every day you know and it just becomes muscle memory and i think tasting is very much like that you start to remember the difference between green apple and yellow apple and you really what it is is paying more attention to those things when you're eating or drinking and I think that the leap between two and three really makes you pay attention to that in a serious way. When you're doing the volunteering for SWE, what was the most beneficial aspect of that? Was it you're pouring a bunch of wine at you know their conferences and stuff, so you get to practice pouring the service component, even though you never went down the C- CMS route, but there's also the networking, then there's the information, the seminars itself. Was there one aspect of that that was more beneficial for you than the others? Yeah. So like, even though in Friuli, I decided I wanted to pursue wine, there's always this question mark, right? After you like make a decision, there's still some element of like buyer's remorse, I guess. And then other elements of like, is this truly for me? You know, I I did decide I wanted to go from cooking to wine, but then I said, well, maybe wine isn't it, right? The Society of Wine Educators Conference was one of the two or three major moments for me that solidified wine was the way I wanted to go. The other was when I was living in Italy and making wine there, which we can talk about, I'm sure. But there was a particular seminar, two seminars, actually. One was like a Sasakaya vertical. Uh, the other was a Tim Gazer Riesling seminar. And I remember like the, in particular, the Riesling seminar blowing my mind in like to pieces and then kind of putting it back together in this amazing way. And, you know, Tim Gazer is like such an incredible speaker and educator and the way he distilled down this information and especially like, you know, German wine labeling is like seemingly insanely confusing. But once it clicks, it's like, oh, this is the simplest thing ever. And I think he did that for me, like having very little understanding of German wine to begin with. And we're tasting like 30 different wines from Grossegewex to Auschleza, you know, to Chalkenbeer and Auschleses and just tasting the difference between the different slates, the colored slates and uh, different villages in the Mosul even. And I would say like that particular seminar that I was super lucky enough to be volunteering in that room and then sat in on will stick with me forever. Do you think more people should go that route or try their hand at volunteering to gain information? Because otherwise, most people, it's you study on your own, you can form a study group, you can do, you know, tasting groups, 
you know, you work at a restaurant every single night, but you know, out of all the sommeliers that we've had on, nobody has ever done volunteering like you did. So is that something that more aspiring sommeliers and wine professionals should be open-minded to doing? Yeah, man. I mean, I think it's always good to get out there, right? Like it doesn't ever hurt to be involved. I, I do feel like a lot of the sommeliers I see here in San Francisco, I see them get involved in like Pebble Beach, for instance, and like be involved there. But I think as you're younger and really trying to like grind your teeth, there's a few things that are really important. Obviously, like learning about wine and tasting wine, but I think just like learning how to network and learning how to talk to people. And like, I remember at one of these events, I met like the CEO of Coca-Cola at the time. And I had like no freaking idea what to ask this guy, right? And I was like, oh yeah, I heard about the new machine you guys are coming out with. And just like, the guy's like, cool, and walked away. <laughs> you know, he's like, it was like such a good, like fall on your face moment. Cause like, oh yeah, I got to like learn how to connect with people and talk to them. And that's just as important as learning your way around wine. Yeah. I mean, I think it's always good to volunteer. And I, you know, I was really fortunate that I had a mentor at Johnson Wales who was on the board of the Society of Wine Educators, and he he really guided me through some of these decisions. And so I think like the overarching lesson is mentorship is really crucial. Getting out there and getting your name out there and getting getting your hands dirty and yeah, volunteering. I would I'd recommend it big time. So as you kind of alluded to, you wound up doing harvest. You did it in Italy. Was there a specific reason why you chose to go back to Italy instead of doing like a harvest in Napa or something like that? Well, yeah, I was still living in the, on the East Coast at the time. It's wild how the kind of my worlds collided to land back in Italy. However, that experience cooking in Friuli like cemented that I have a huge, huge piece of my heart is in Italy and will always be there. There is a cultural element of Italians, the way food and obviously wine is such an integral part of their day and their life the way that they like talk about food, the way they talk about the meal in front of them. It just is like, it, I love it so much. I was living in Charleston and after undergrad, before I had decided I wanted to do grad school and was kind of just like surfing and working at a restaurant job and like kind of just screwing off, to be honest, and figuring out like what I wanted to do. And there was a guy who worked at the restaurant, the sister restaurant to where I was at, um, I worked at this place called Slightly North of Broad or Snob. That's what it was all known as. And then he worked at a place across the street as the bartender. And he would always like come over and kind of flirt with me. I would always like flirt back. And then eventually I was like, hey, man, you know, I'm like, I have like a girlfriend. And what's your deal? What's your story? You know? And so finally he, yeah, you know, I'm from New York and I have this cousin who's like, you're into wine. I have this cousin who uh, makes wine in Italy and she's like dating this Italian guy and uh, you should connect. And so, Crazy enough, like I sent her an email. This was in the summer when I wrote and they needed a harvest hand. And so like through this super nice guy I got to know in Charleston, South Carolina, I met Fabrizio Yuli, who I think is making some of the best like natural wines in Italy and has been doing it since the early 2000s. His now wife, Summer, from upstate New York, she owned indie wineries. She founded and owned it for many years and they... They brought over an incredible portfolio of Italian natural wine. And then she now runs Hootenanny, which has a lot of those producers uh, importing to a smaller set of states. So yeah, so I, I connected with her. She offered to take me in. I offered to work for free. And yeah, I was there. And you know, we made Barbera, Nebbiolo, Pinot Noir. 
Yeah, I had a moment there that was like the definite, you know, nail in the coffin that I was going to be in wine forever. That was an incredible experience. Was there a part of the harvest that you enjoyed more than others? Or like, what was your favorite part of the, the whole thing? Yeah, I mean, there's so many. I think harvest brings a lot of camaraderie that's really special. You're working insane hours. You're uh, working very hard hours. You're I was one of the younger guys on the team. So I was also like picking up all the great bins. So I was picking up hundreds of 50 pound crates every day. This was the strongest I've probably ever been. Um, I was also eating like 10,000 calories of delicious Italian food every day too. They like kind of knew that I was like <laughs> just a, like a garbage disposal. So they would always give me like seconds, thirds, fourths on every single meal. That was like, yeah, again, the camaraderie was special. Um, the hard work was really gratifying. I've always kind of found a lot of purpose and felt really, um, just felt really rewarded and gratified by hard work. And so that's definitely that. And then I would say the third, and this is, this again was kind of the nail in the coffin moment for me was, um, I harvested with Fabrizio's father, uh, Lorenzo. And Lorenzo was the classic old school Italian guy. He didn't even speak Italian. He spoke Piemontese, which is like this crazy kind of amalgam of like French, Italian, and some like mountain Slavic language. Like if you heard it, you probably wouldn't guess it was rooted in Italian. It's a, it's a really interesting language. And so I was still like getting better at Italian. So I had to like try to pull him in to just speak Italian with me. Definitely wasn't going to speak English with me. And, you know, and when you harvest, you typically work in pairs. One of the sections of their vineyard is was called Vigna Vecchia, or basically old vines. It was Barbera that was planted by Lorenzo's father pre-World War II. And somehow these Barbera vines had like made it through decades and decades. And it's not that much, much like super old vine Barbera in that area, even Monferrato, like Nizza, you just don't see it even in the homeland of it. And I remember that day harvesting with him and we're just like speaking in Italian and like harvesting these grapes that his father planted. And I was just like, had this like, holy shit moment, like several times goosebumps, like this is so beautiful and special. And this is like definitely where I want to be for the rest of my life. So it was, yeah, it was during that day harvesting with him that I realized that was like solidified wine is like my journey. And this is where I'm going to be. It ended up being Lorenzo's last harvest as well. So he passed away the next year. So I think it made it even more special to like have harvested it with him and have that like memory of him. And I ended up like getting a tattoo of a vine from that vineyard, kind of in honor of him and Fabrizio and Summer and that, that experience. Why did you want to continue on the education side? Because you wind up getting your master's, you do some teaching uh, as well as an adjunct, you know, wine business professor. So why was the education route so important to you at that time? Instead of going, you know, you have your WSET level three, you could go work in restaurants, floor song, possibly wine director, whatever, but you stay on the education side. Because I value mentorship so much. I always wanted a mentor. I was lucky to have one for a part of my college career. And then after school, after I moved away from Rhode Island, I never really had another one um, that was like very explicitly like, I'm your mentor, Peter. I want to like meet with you and, and take time to help you on your journey. And so for me, I've always wanted to provide that wherever I can. It's definitely a big part of what I'm doing today. Um, and anything I can do to help young wine people get into the industry or anyone I can in the wine world or in any other capacity, really. But for me, teaching is the ultimate way to do that. Number one. Number two, as a teacher, you also are learning constantly. I think wine is like such an insanely complex 
thing to learn. I like kind of always joke, like if I knew what the hell I was doing, I would have gone to medical school or law school. and like, <laughs> I would have like been done and, and making a bunch of money well before I finished my diploma. Even, you know, the wine industry requires a lot of you. And um, I think it would be ridiculous to think that you would ever learn it all. And so a big part of teaching is you continue learning in a really like deep way. And then you can share those learnings with students. So it's kind of a twofold thing for me. Did you have an overall plan at this time? Like, were you seriously considering just being professor or, you know, did you want to get back into kind of the brick and mortar side of the wine industry? At this point, you're kind of done with restaurants. Eventually you wind up as the general manager at uh, Grapes and Grains and you've built out their wine program and everything. But did you have kind of an overall plan or was it just kind of whatever opportunity came your way at that time? Um, no, I was trying to figure that out. You know, that's another thing for me. And I think with mentorship and why I value it so much is although the wine industry is obviously very mature, I found it really hard to break into. So again, why I want to help mentor anybody is like, it's challenging to figure out what way, what path to take that's like best suited to your strengths. I think it's such a like passionate industry that your emotions can take over maybe a more like focused decision for your career path. But yeah, after the harvest, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. I wasn't sure if I wanted to follow the production route, uh, which made a lot of sense given like I had gone from cooking to wine and that you could get back into like producing something and like crafting something. So I like applied for UC Davis, um, the grad school there. I got in, but I was only in if I did a year of chemistry classes prior and then I could do the master's in winemaking. And I was like, no. I regret that a little bit. I just didn't see myself doing three more years of school. I could see myself eking out two, (laughs) but three seemed like daunting for some reason. So I came back and that's when I did the MBA because I knew I needed to like, again, continue to be more rounded out in this, in this journey. And what I realized I didn't know enough of was like general business, you know, just how to start a business, how to run a business, how to like look at it from a financial point of view and ensure that you're always solvent and always maintaining some form of profitability. And so I'm really glad that I did that because it gave me a little more time to figure out what I wanted to do. But again, it gave me more of a stronger foundation for what I'm doing today. When you become the general manager at Grapes and Greens and you build out essentially the wine, the craft spirits and the craft beer side of this retail operation, was it what you expected or was being in a role like that, were you surprised at how much more of your time is spent on things like marketing and just operations and and not just like alcohol purchasing? That opportunity came about actually through my mentor. His his name was Ed Corey. He was um, the department chair, uh, the beverage department chair at Johnson Wales at the time. He's retired now. But the guy who wanted to open Grapes and Grains, he was an insurance guy in Rhode Island who his name was Matt Amaral. He had a lifelong dream of wanting to open a store. It was kind of an homage to a family member who had long passed. And he needed someone. He was he was a smart guy. And he realized he didn't know anything about wine or beer or spirits. So he needed somebody to, to run it for him. And so he reached out to Johnson Wales. It's like the beauty of being in Rhode Island is you have this like factory of talented chefs and wine people kind of coming out every year, right? And so fortunately, he connected with Ed and then Matt and I connected and I actually turned the job down initially. I was working back at that restaurant and I was like, I don't know if I want to be in the retail side. I don't know if I want to open this business. Like just so dumb of me and probably just stubborn, like 22 year old. 
And finally, I realized that I got, I guess I got kind of lucky. I had like the worst day ever as a, as a server and just got like kind of ripped apart by a bunch of, of customers. I was like, you know what? I don't want to do the restaurant world anymore. I just kind of, kind of realized it. And uh, so I went and opened up the wine store. It was cool because Matt was, had a lot of passion and vision, but he also had a lot of trust in me as a young, like just finished grad school kid. And he's like, this is my vision. Here's the blueprint. Here's the budget. Get this thing filled. And so I remember meeting with all the distributors in Rhode Island. I remember having this, this one specific meeting with a very prominent distributor. And I remember walking into their facility with, they had literally hundreds of bottles ready to open. And then they saw me. I could tell that they didn't expect a kid to walk in the door. And I saw their body language change and I saw them completely not take me seriously. And I remember that very, very viscerally. And I, I actually kind of kept that, like kept that chip on my shoulder I, for years. And like, you know what? Like, yeah, I'm young and like I obviously have a lot to learn, but I also have a lot that I can give. And like, if you don't take that seriously, then I'm not going to take you seriously. It was a, kind of a big thing for me. Um, and I ended up buying the wines I needed from them, but definitely didn't go as far down the route as I needed to. And I think that has helped me have more empathy when someone young or someone like just getting out into the wine world comes approaches me. It's like, how do I actually help guide them through instead of judging them? for not being as far along as I am, right? So back to your question, like it was a small shop. It's only 2,200 square feet. So there was enough where I could still be the, the guy making the buying decisions and do all the tastings. And I tried to like bring my team along and have them taste whenever they could. It was definitely like you got into the nitty gritty of like the business side of it and the spreadsheets and the operations. And I guess in a weird way, I like that stuff. So I enjoy the wine side, but I also enjoy like the kind of admin side of this as well. I'm really grateful for that experience because I think opening a business and developing it from the ground up with someone who has just gave me the trust and autonomy that they did, I think really helped set me on my path for where I am now. So then for like the next eight years or so from like 2014 to 2022, you're pretty much in sales in some capacity and also kind of doing some education stuff on the side with all that and the different kind of you were for a couple different places in, in sales and you know were vp and and all that stuff too did you ever get to a point where you were kind of tired of sales or was it just kind of you reached a point where you wanted to do something for yourself and then that's kind of where as we get into you know culture wine co you know and, and opening that i've always had aspirations of starting my own thing i think grapes and grains was a great catalyst for that because it showed me I could do it. it showed me where I had weaknesses for sure by no means was it was my like my opening of that company perfect I had a lot I learned a lot from it and I realized too like I want to do something that's mine but I was waiting to gain more knowledge and other elements of the business and just become again continue to be more rounded in my past role at Vinfolio, I started at, as a business development manager and worked my way up to vice president of sales and ops I was never, you know, there I wasn't in direct sales. I was always working with the sales team and developing offers for them and finding them the right wines. And then eventually looking at it from larger kind of business operational point of view as the vice president. But I did realize that I didn't, it was tough for me there because it was a really kind of frenetic work environment. There was a lot of cleanup to be done from day one. And then there was a lot of growth happening at the same time. We got it to $50 million a year in turnover. So it was a really really crazy environment. Um, it's such, and I've learned so, so, so much um, on how to run a business and how not to, and how I don't want to. 
And throughout that, I realized that like when I'm really deep in the operational side, I was really struggling to connect with customers because I was just so buried with work. And so for me, it was like, I try to stay out of contact with them because I needed to just get my work done. But I also realized that didn't make me as happy because I think what makes me so happy about wine is like the connecting factor. Uh, You get to like share a bottle with someone and share a story with someone. And like, you know, you put that bottle in their hand and you like see them kind of light up at the story you share, the flavor profile you're sharing, or the best is when they're actually drinking it and just experience that and have that aha moment. And I wasn't getting that in my past role. I'm really excited in this current one to like focus on wines that I'm like really invested into and love and like appreciate. And then I can also watch, you know, a lot of folks here don't really know much about South African wine. And so there's to see a lot of folks like have the experience for the first time is, is amazing. Being in sales in any profession is usually pretty cutthroat. Is it possible for someone in wine sales to have a goal other than increasing sales increasing their client Rolodex, like, is that possible? Or do you just get bogged down with those two aspects that everything else kind of falls by the wayside? I think at my past role, we were trading fine wine, right? So I was sourcing from negotiants from the UK bonded market and mostly from Europe and then importing with our old license. And so the access to the most rare special wines in the world was like mind boggling to me. I oversaw our warehouse, which had a quarter of a billion dollars in it. And I would like walk in every day through the warehouse to say hi to the team. And there's like pallets of Lafitte and Mouton. And like, it was just insane to see this. When you're selling that, it feels really high stakes because you got some really expensive inventory. When I approach it from a Culture Wine Co. point of view, I get really excited because I kind of lean back into the educational element of it. It's like in my roots of why I'm even in the wine world to begin with. I think to be able to see someone have the aha moment with wine at any point is so special to me. It's why I started this. It's why I teach some classes to like consumers on the side, like do it just to like share wine, you know, on the sales side. Yeah, of course. Like I have goals for my business and I want to see it grow and I have to like, you know, reach specific volumes and it's high stakes because it's like my (laughs) loans I got to pay back, you know, but at the same time, I poured my first ever wines this past Friday and to see consumers like react positively to wine that I'm like putting kind of everything I have into was like emotional. It was, it was honestly like so gratifying and emotional in the most like beautiful way. So it makes the sales side worth it. If you can approach it, I think less from a volume and numbers point of view and more from like, I want to connect with people who want to tell stories and who want to share wine the same way I do. And so that's like how I want to find partners and sell wine. So during this time period too, you wind up, I think 2018, you pass your WSET level four diploma in wine. What was the biggest challenge with doing the level four diploma for you? Dude, it was, it was such a, such a grueling two years, man. I mean, number one, it's a, it's a very financially heavy endeavor. I was extremely lucky and like, my advice to anyone doing diploma is to work in retail for those couple of years because you have an extremely wide access to stock, to wine. I was working at Prima at the time, which like such a great shop and you know a restaurant that lasted over 40 years until COVID finally took it out. The retail side is still kicking. When I was working for um, John Rittmaster, who I have just like so much respect for, he 
He's really been one of the drivers of growing Italian wine here. I think he's kind of more understated. So he doesn't have a lot of like notoriety out there around the young Psalms, but the guy is a really incredible wealth of knowledge. So working for him was very useful, but, and another guy who gave me a lot of autonomy to do things the way I thought they should be done. And he trusted me, which is a hugely helpful thing. Um, And then I had access to all these incredible distributors and importers we have here. You know, California, we're so lucky in the Bay Area. We have such a tremendous diversity of wines here because of the importers that are based here and distributors that are based here. And so I was reading like the Native Grapes of Italy book from Ian Dagata and finding these like really weird little varietals that are only grown in like a 10 hectare area in like Puglia or something. And I could get it. I could get it within a day. That was huge. So I had a lot of curiosity. And then I was able to actually get my hands on any of it because of the retail store I was in. So I was tasting easily 50 to 100 wines a week for two years, just constantly tasting. So that became grueling. And like, to be honest, by the end of it, I was kind of a little like burnt out on wine. I was kind of like, okay, I want to do something that's more business focused with wine, which is what led me to Vinfolio because it felt to be more business focused than like necessarily about like the product. And so again, kind of round out, but the, the, it's, it's an intensely grueling experience. Uh, I can't even imagine how people become masters of wine or masters of molliers. It's crazy. Any thoughts on pursuing a masters of wine eventually? Uh, yeah. There's always that little like thing, that voice in the back of my head. That's like, just do it. You're there. You're so close, you know, but the older I get and the more I value my time away from wine and work and relationships and like spending time with my wife and my friends and family, like is it actually worth it? Is the trade-off in time worth it? And that's the question I keep asking myself. It's like, what is the, what is the reward? Do I make more money? Do I, is it purely for vanity? Do I become a speaker at all these places just because I'm now a master of wine? I don't know if it would fit what I want to do. And that's, that's the question, but like so much respect for those who have gone through it and those that are going through it. It's, it's crazy amount of work. So like we kind of alluded to earlier this year, you launched Culture Wine Co., which focuses on importing South African wine to California, but you also make it direct available direct to consumer through your website and everything. What gave you the idea, not just to start this business, but to focus on South African wine specifically, which you want to say it's a underserved market. It's something that most people don't know about, but it does have its own section in any exam that you're doing too. So people are aware of it, but it isn't something you encounter very often. So like, where did that idea come from? You're definitely right. Like South African wine accounts for less than 1% of all wine that's imported into the US. So just by the numbers, it's very little that makes it here, but it's a very large wine producing country. So yeah, so South African wine yeah, it counts for, for less than 1% of all wine. Very small amount of wine that's imported. It took me visiting there for it to click. I think South Africa is one of those places that's so visceral that once you go there, it just makes sense. It's stunningly beautiful. It is like the, the hospitality and the people are incredible. The food scene is like next level. There's such good food there. And the culture is amazing. When I went, I was just there on vacation. Unfortunately, I had been laid off at the end of last year from Vinfolio. And I really thought I had a lot more to do there. So that kind of broke me apart. Um, It was a good lesson in kind of how vicious business can be, how I don't want to run a company in the future. 
but it also really kind of ran me off the rails. So I was like, oh shit, I thought I had a lot more to do. I thought I had more time here and more things I wanted to achieve. Uh, what, what, what am I going to do? And so fortunately my, my wife super down to travel. We love to travel together. And so like, well, we have the time. Let's go to like the furthest part of the world <laughs> away from California, which is so we did some time in Tanzania, which is like epic. I uh, highly recommend anyone to go to Tanzania uh, at some point in their life. And then we did South Africa. And like while we were there, I planned a couple winery things, but it wasn't like the trip was just to go see South Africa. And because we see so little of it here, I didn't go there expecting a lot. I didn't expect to be as like ingrained in the wine as I was theirs. And but as we were eating at these restaurants and asking these sommeliers about these different wines I had never heard of and different producers, I was like, my wheels started turning and my juices were like flowing. I was really getting excited. And I was feeling that same excitement that I found in Italy that drew me to wine in the first place that converted me from cooking into wine. When we were there... So we were eating at a restaurant, Emma Zolwini, which is one of the few Zulu restaurants, but a new restaurant in Cape Town. While we were there, we were sitting next to this guy that we ended up introducing ourselves to. Um, his name was Hardy. And he, he let me know that, that he has this wine fair he, he's putting on. And uh, so he invited me to this wine fair he's putting on called Good Juice. We had been in South Africa for a few days at this point. And like I said, my kind of my like juices were flowing and my wheels were turning into this thing. It was like, wow, what's happening here is really incredible. And the fact that we're not really hearing a lot about it in the States is kind of blowing my mind. And I wonder if there's a way to like bring more representation to these wines. And so I decided to go to that wine fair, which required me to come back from Stellenbosch into Cape Town, which is like an hour away. But fortunately, my wife was down to just like hang out by herself at the hotel. And then I went to this fair for like five hours. I tasted every single wine, met with every single producer, kind of asked them all what they think about what's happening in the industry. And I realized there that the quality is outrageous. It's so high. There's an incredible like surge of these young producers who are super dynamic, making really cool stuff. And this community at this fair was like something I hadn't seen in a long time. It felt like everyone was really there to like lift each other up. And that this like genuine sense of like, if I'm going to be successful, then my neighbor is going to be successful. And I just found that to be so refreshing and something I wanted to be a part of. Yeah, it was just like walking, talking about a bunch of different names. I was thinking about um, Chaparral as one because there's Feinbus in South Africa, which are very similar to what we have in California known as Chaparral and this kind of this like shrubs. And I thought this kind of two world concept made sense. I then looked at Rising Tides as uh, one because I thought that that community like element that I experienced in South Africa of like people really looking out for one another, I thought that that was like a beautiful thing. Felt like there was a true Rising Tides like effect to how they approach their relationships. And then I landed on Culture Wine Company because to me, it's like I want to share culture through wine. I want to like continue learning about and being a part of South African culture bring that into how we're talking about the wine. So like, for instance, I have like a songs of South Africa playlist that I put on, like I will have on my website, every like wine club shipment that I send out, I put on a different South African song. And so try to like bring more than just the wine to what we're, what we're, this and the stories we're telling. Why is South African wine not more popular? Like you mentioned, it's, you know, less than 1% of what's imported into the U S 
is it just essentially lack of available resources where you know shipping materials electricity obviously they have pretty notorious for having blackouts marketing you know they don't have enough money to push themselves to kind of the top of the the list where people might notice them more like what's the exact reason or is there one I don't think there's one singular reason. I think you just mentioned a few key challenges that they have. And I think one of the most amazing things about South Africans is their resiliency. And I think all of those challenges and other ones you didn't mention add up to like a winemaking community that fights and works their asses off to make really good wine. And I think that attracts me to it big time. I love seeing folks just like put everything in and coming, producing something so special. But I think a big part of the reason why there, we don't see much of it is that it's really far away. It requires importers to be really very much all in. My feeling, I could be wrong, but my feeling on this is that the importers that are there are looking at importing wine for a national distribution point of view. They go to import wine to work with the three-tier system here in the US, which I don't think benefits the smaller producer very much, no matter where you are, where you're coming from. And so I think that a lot of these small producers are being have been passed up because there's not enough smaller importers willing to go in and focus on it because there's not enough volume to make it to all of the states that they're in. I think that there's like this incredible young small producer movement there that has been kind of in some ways left behind because the larger suppliers that have already been there really want to focus on a certain minimum size requirement to be able to get to more states. We had uh, Kelly Ford on and, and she ships wine out of Nevada, but she can only ship to certain states. And she kind of got really into the details of just like shipping licenses to other states and like wine laws and how all that works. And like California is, has stuff grandfathered in. So it allows you to kind of ship to more places. And that's why you see more, more places set up for distribution out of California versus some of the other states, I guess. We're definitely really lucky in California because I can license as an importer, a wholesaler and a retailer. But in most states, you can only be in one of those tiers only an importer, only a wholesaler, only a retailer. And so it forces you to engage in the three-tier system and it may not benefit the business model that you want to run. Whereas like what I want to do is connect the producer to the consumer directly. But I also realize that like wholesale is critically important to grow their branding too. Like sommeliers and buyers need to be involved and need to be storytellers for these, these wineries. Because I'm here in California, I can connect with consumers through my wine club, through the retail side, through events I'll run here in San Francisco as I gain more customers and can get people to them. But on the other end, I can do some wine dinners and do some tastings at stores. And like, my goal is to be the thought leader of South African wine here. I want to like, really, I'm, I'm only focused on South African wine because I want to, I want to continue learning more about it and I want to share it. And I want to be able to share it with consumers and the trade alike. And being in California really allows me to do that without the need of working with like another wholesaler or a different retailer at all times. How do you select which wineries, which wines that you import and then incorporate either on the website or in the wine club? Like, do you have a criteria? Is it someplace that you have to have visited yourself? Is that part of the criteria? Like, what is your methodology for like, this is good enough to where I want to include this into what I'm doing? 
Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, definitely have to visit, have to personally connect with the producers. First and foremost, number one always is quality. Is the quality there? Is it consistent quality? Will it last the travels from South Africa to California? Will it be consistent? I think for me, it's so important that a that a consumer who spends like their hard-earned dollars on a bottle doesn't get something that's funky or faulty. So although my producers are all in the minimal intervention, some of them in like the fully natural world, there's a consistency to the wine, which is critical to me. Once I decided I wanted to start Culture Wine Company, I went back to South Africa to meet with producers. By the time it was all done, I met with 50 producers, tasted like hundreds and hundreds of wines. I traveled over 1500 kilometers by car, which was fun because you're like driving on the other side of the road and uh, all that in 11 days. And so between that and then other meetings that I had like the previous trip, I distilled that down to nine producers to import. And my goal with that was to show like the amazing breadth of styles and wines that are made there. So I have a couple sparkling wines that are made like Method Cap Classique to Petnat. And then I have like Chenin Blancs to Pinotage and then some more Rhone varietals. And so my goal is to like be able to go to the Natty Wine Bar and I have some cool natural wine. Go to like a place that wants something that's a little more like quote unquote traditional, but still in the minimal intervention. And I can I can connect with them there. And then I can kind of go with the depth within that over time. You know, I could easily have just imported 20 Chenin Blancs, but that wouldn't really, really do me very well. So the goal is, is to like really expose the amazing variety that's coming out of South Africa right now and like bring that here first, lessen the barrier to entry for people and not make it a little, not make it intimidating and then start kind of developing greater depth in each of these styles. It's early on in the business, but do you get referred or solicited by any of the wineries in, in South Africa? Has that happened yet for you? I've had a few people reach out, a few wineries reach out, which on one hand, is kind of like it's gratifying to be like, oh my God, like my name is out there. That's really cool. And that means a lot. It makes me want to work even harder for my existing partners because like I firmly believe and I, for me, the like it's very important. I always keep the mentality that like Culture Wine Co. is nothing without my producers. I'm a conduit for their story. And I think it's really important for me to to maintain that. And hearing from new producers looking for representation, it shows me a couple of things. Like it, it makes me feel even stronger and more connected to my producers and make me want to tell their story even more. But it also shows me that there's like such a great need for 50 more of me, uh, more more people to go to South Africa to visit to like bring it back, to talk about it. And so there's there's just such a great opportunity to talk about these wines and share them more. Is there a limit to the amount of wineries, producers, wines that you can handle? Because right now it's kind of just you, right? So I got to imagine there's a limit to before it's like you, you got to expand. But I'm sure based on you know everything we've covered, like you pretty much know how to do that. Definitely, man. I think you know, of course, when you write a business plan, like I did for culture, and I, I spent a couple months writing it. And really, I mean, two months of nothing, but I have a plan, I have a, a growth plan, I have a trajectory I expect to hit. Of course, those are all just projections, right? Like, it could grow faster, it could be a total dud. But I do have a goal of like, a, a, an amount of producers to work with. And I think what's and how many to bring on every year, I think what's absolutely most important to me is that no matter how much I grow and how many producers I bring on, 
the folks who have been with me since day one are always like honored and their stories are always told and they're always like a critical part of the book. And I think that's a, that's a, an important piece for me. They were with me. They believed in the story and like, that's all I had when I went to them. I had a business plan. I had a deck I put together, but all in all, like took a lot of trust for them to say like, yeah, I'll go to America with you. I'll go to the other side of the world with you. So that means a lot to me. And that's something I won't ever forget. You do these trips to South Africa. You explore these wineries, like you're going, you're visiting them. When you get there, it's something that you envision that you want to include this winery, this producer in your book. But how do you do that, but also still be able to effectively and impartially judge if this wine is actually good enough? Because you're already there, right? You spent the money, you're on the flight, you did everything. And then it's like, you get up to the 11th hour and it's like, am I blinding myself or is this actually good enough to, to be a part of what I'm building? Yeah, man, it's, it's such a great question. And I think, I think part of this experience is definitely like, it's one half judgment art, for lack of a better expression. And then one half pure like numbers, business sense. Does this specific producer and style of wine fit what I need in my book right now, right? Building a wine portfolio as an importer or distributor is very much like building stock portfolio. It's like, it needs to be balanced and it needs to offer a way to like, well, if one producer falls behind, you're hedged by another producer that is maybe like they had a better harvest in Swartland than they did in Stellenbosch, for instance, right? And it's really important to build balance so you're hedged in some way. But when you're talking about it from the perspective of like building that, it's always hard because when you're in the environment and like in such a ridiculously beautiful place like South Africa, and you're at the winery tasting, like I think it's always going to be that the wines are going to taste a little bit better. And I think that's true no matter where you are in the world. There was only a couple of producers that I said, when I go to this producer and I we have a meeting, they know that I'm chatting with them about this project. If they say they'll work with me at this moment, I will say with them, we're on. But the rest, and I said, there are only a couple of them. The rest of those producers, the rest of the meetings I had were, okay, let me see how the whole week goes. Let me get home and digest. And let me like really make a sound decision on this and take some time to think about it. And I brought a lot of bottles back, tasted again, back home. And so, yeah, it was there was a lot... A lot of thought into the into the partners, the partnerships. Yeah, like I said, in the end, I think the breadth of of styles is really, really important. And I think it's it's quite diverse. It seems like online wine sales and shipping is becoming more fractured. Like you kind of touched on it where smaller producers just can't get into the big distributor kind of books of business. So are the days of like, you know, your one stop shop like your wine.coms or are those kind of coming to an end it feels like to me that they are just because you know i live in ohio we have some strategic wine laws that have kind of reduced the amount of stuff that you can get shipped in especially from like a wine.com where all of a sudden you change your location and then it's like oh all this stuff's available is that a trend that you're noticing as well i mean i know you're in it you're exclusively focusing on south african wine but that seems to be kind of where the market's shifting where it's you have to have a very specific thing that you're pursuing and be the best at you. I don't know if anybody could come along and be like, we have all this stuff, pick from it. It's almost too much. Yeah, it's it's overwhelming. I mean, wine as a consumer, I feel for a consumer 
as a wine buyer, you know, like it is an insane amount of decision making to be done. You know, whether you're shopping online or going into a retail shop, you know, I can only can control what I can control. So when it comes to these like bigger picture questions around, you know, states like Ohio, which I know there was the Supreme Court case recently that looks possibly in favor of retailers throughout a state, but it keeps getting prolonged. That stuff is really hard to to fight because you're it's truly David and Goliath. I obviously want to side with the part of a more free market. Like why is wine challenging to ship, but like I can buy a pair of shoes and get them shipped anywhere, right? It's like I understand the legalities, but I don't agree with a lot of like the stringent laws that some states have. Again, I can only control what I can control, so I just try to focus on like helping the consumer shop in a way that's best for them. And like having been in small bottle shops, my a majority of my career, I always suggest that people who are just getting into wine, especially, and even if you're a, a big wine lover, is to find like a physical shop that you like to shop at. Because I think going and like building a rapport with the with the people that work there is like your best bet. Because then it's like, oh Ray, you really dug this Barolo. Well, now let's go into this Nebbiolo from like Idlewild and Mendocino. Like crazy enough, it's from California, but it's really drinks like something you'd find in the old world. And that only happens with time and trust. And it's really hard to do that online. And like, I recognize that as an online wine retailer. It's a major part of my goal to like create that experience for my customers in time. I don't think anything will ever replace being able to walk into a bottle store and building that trust just because of the sheer like volume of wine and styles and labels that are out there today. What do you think is the next region, wine region to, you know, explode in popularity? So if you're going to say South Africa, then is there a certain part of South Africa that is primed over the others, you know, whether it's Stellenbosch or what have you? There's definitely plenty of regions outside of South Africa. I definitely think Chile is still due to have its like time. Argentina as well. I feel like they've really like the they're still always like one step away from more consumers really sticking with it. But the wines that's coming out in Chile in particular, like outrageous. With South Africa, yeah, I think, you know, Stellenbosch and Franz Hook are really well developed. They've got incredible tourism built in. They're the two kind of longest producing regions in the country, aside from Constancia. So I feel like if we're going to talk about like a niche, like a sub-region within South Africa, I think uh, Hamelin Arder is really has come a really long way. I think Anthony and Olive Hamilton have really been major pioneers in that area. They've they're from Hamilton Russell, uh, which is which is all distributed here. They've worked so hard to delineate not just like the Hamilton Arder, but create it into three subregions based on the soil type, based on these microclimates. And I think because of that, you see Pinot Noir and Chardonnay coming from that area. I think it's the best in the country. Definitely Elgin, very close by, makes really great cool climate as well. But I think I think consumers can easily think Hamel and Arda, Pinot Noir Chardonnay, and like kind of start to dive in and expand from there. And the quality is like is really exceptional. So I would say that that would probably be like an up-and-coming area um, within South Africa for sure. Do you have a like a, a white whale Moby Dick? producer that you want to bring into your book, but like for whatever reason, like, you know, the wine's great, but you just like can't get a meeting with them or or whatever. Yeah, man, there's, I definitely have a, have a target list. I would say there's one guy in particular that is, that is there. And the, the guy makes an exceptional wine in the Swartland. 
he is like on the same plane as the Saudis and Badenhorst and the Molinos. He does not have an Instagram account, doesn't have a website, and you cannot find his email or phone number anywhere. Right. And he's like, he's kind of reminds me of like the Reyes of, you know, of that area because he's like just straight up does not want to be contacted. But he's like, you see him out at a lot of wine events. I just think he doesn't want people calling him for like requests. When I landed in Cape Town in, in April to to kick off all these meetings, I started my first meeting with um, Matthew, who is the owner of Leo's Wine Bar in, in Cape Town. Super respect for him. A, he's built like the coolest little wine bar in the city. He's a partner with Hardy in that uh, wine fair, which is called Good Juice, the one I went to. And he's just like a really even keeled, like super knowledgeable, really connected guy. And I mentioned this producer to him and I was like, I would love to meet with him on this trip and talk to him about what I'm doing. And he's like, you know what, man, gave me like really great advice. He's like, I think, I think what you're doing fits this guy's world. And I think there's definitely a time in which you two will need to meet. But I also think you need to like kind of establish yourself, prove yourself, get some traction and then go back. And I think that was really good advice to kind of help me like slow down, take it a step at a time and realize like these things take take patience and and also proving yourself. And so, yeah, this producer is definitely like, I, I definitely want to connect with him eventually. And uh, I hope to hope to work with him for sure. What's uh, next for you professionally? I know you mentioned, you know, some tasting events and everything like that. Is there another trip to South Africa on the horizon for you before the end of the year or what's going on? I wish before the end of the year, man, they're getting into their summer now. So they're, uh, I'm just seeing all these pictures of them, like enjoying warm weather and <laughs> in good, good times. Um, I won't be back there until probably March, maybe April, you know, their harvest is coming up, uh, in, in February. So my goal right now is to just get the word out for culture, man. Have, I just signed up for the Hospice to Rhone event in Walla Walla in April. I'm really hoping to get a few of my natural wine producers into the raw wine fairs. Uh, I would love and be so honored to pour or get the producers here in April as well. And yeah, my goal was just to get, get out there, man, and like tell the story of these producers and of the wines. And yeah, just it's kind of time to like my wine just landed here on Friday, my first container. I got to hold the bottles and like see the culture wine label and like taste some of the wines. And it's been like a really emotional and special experience. So I want to like really kind of bring that with me and keep that like positive charge going and try to try to get some restaurants and retailers to to connect before the end of the year, which is a understandably challenging, you know, they don't want to meet some new dude in, uh, in December, <laughs> but yeah, just working on getting the word out there and, uh, you know, trying to find people who are interested and, uh, like to be storytellers like me. So this next question comes from previous guest on the podcast, sommelier and general manager of Bar Gobo in Vancouver, Peter Vanderreep. He left behind for you. Are there any regulations that can be opened up to help your business? Oh my God. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, easiest would be that I wouldn't need to license in other states to wholesale. Currently, I would have to go into any other state and license as a wholesaler, which is quite challenging and cumbersome. So typically it would make sense that I would work with a wholesale partner to do that. If I could get into a state like Georgia and be able to get in with a few Atlanta-based re restaurants and retailers that have South African kind of dominant lists, that would be tremendously helpful for me, for the producers, right? I think that's what's more important is their stories can be told across a wide spectrum. How hard, like, is it just a lengthy process, like filling out tons and tons of forms or like what is the biggest barrier in that process of, of getting that access? 
The process is time consuming and it's costly. You know, for me to get licensed here in California, it took me several months. It was, it was a crazy experience. And I had to work with lawyers to do it because, I mean, it's, it's complicated and you want to do it right. That's a one important step. And the other important step is like, if you're going to get into another state, there's obviously a tremendous amount of research that needs to be done. You don't just get in there because of one account or one specific thing. You get in there because there's a really long, broad strategy that you've already laid out. If you want to expand to 20 states, you need to do that for every single state. Every state is different. The communities are different. The cities are different. The legalities are different. And so that requires research for everyone individually. It's just, it's an incredibly time-consuming process. What's the question you want to leave behind for the next guest? How are ways that you can be a mentor to your wine community more? Next question comes from one of our listeners. They wrote in what, in your opinion, is the biggest barrier for people getting into the wine community, the world of wine today? Oh, so great question. I think it is extremely complicated because wine requires knowledge of history, geography, geology, tasting. It's, it's very complicated. So it's hard to know where to start. And I think with that, you typically tend to think that certifications are the way to go. And that's very costly. I think that just finding the right launching pad is hard. I think being able to connect with people who are in the industry, chat with them about their their stories and then figure out what makes sense for you. But yeah, if there's any way to find financial help within the certification route, that's definitely the, the way to go. So this last set of questions we asked everybody who comes on the podcast. So a nice compare and contrast across the episodes for the listener. Who would you say is the biggest influence on your career thus far when you look back on it? Yeah, my, my late brother. He got me through some hard times with a, with a sick father and got me into cooking and was a hugely impactful part of my life and stole a lot of like great values and who I am as an adult. What is your desert island wine? It would be Barolo. I think what's so special about wine is that the olfactory senses are so tied to memory. The Barolo is just a, something that brings me back to Italy in my time there and set me on the path I'm on now. Restaurant you'd recommend. So a person gets stuck at the San Francisco airport, flight canceled. They reach out to you. Hey, where should we go eat? Point them in this direction. I still love so much Perbaco. It's an old Piemontese restaurant. They make like the best Agnolotti del Pline ever. And so go there, get a bottle of Barolo or a glass of it and Agnolotti del Pline and you'll be, you'll be happy you're stuck here. Bucket list travel destination, bucket list restaurant. Place you have not visited or traveled to yet. You still want to get to... And then a restaurant you have not dined at, but you still want to make it to. I still haven't been to French Laundry, which is wild. I really want to go there and have that experience. Because when I was in cooking school, I remember going to their farm and like stealing a piece of lettuce and thinking it was the coolest thing ever. <laughs> so that would be that. I think bucket list travel destination, probably be like Tahiti or some wild island and just like disappearing for a while and surfing and being in the water. You don't work in restaurants now, but when you did, what was the craziest thing you ever saw happen? Oh, God. I don't know if I can say it on air, but I think when I was first getting into cooking, I was a prep cook and I worked with the sweetest lady, Carmen from El Salvador, just loved her so much. And I unfortunately watched her slice the tip of her finger off on a, on a meat slicer one day. And that was really gnarly, not fun. She was okay. She made a full recovery, but it was, uh, it was tough. Food or drink guilty pleasures or anything, fast food, candy, whatever that you know is kind of unhealthy for you, but you just can't help yourself. Uh, my wife and I are on the like never ending quest to find the perfect burger. 
Uh, and we probably a burger like almost every week. We're probably at the point where we got to stop doing that. So this next one, we broke into four categories. So it's wine recommendations. You can go whichever way you want. If you want to stay within South Africa or you just want to go all over. But we broke it in a retail a bottle price point. So zero to $20 a bottle, zero to 50 zero to a hundred and then over a hundred, no limit. If you have three that are all under 20, uh, you can obviously slot them into those first three categories, but this is kind of what you think people should be drinking when they're out at a wine shop. This is stuff that they should be looking for, not necessarily going to the grocery store and, and browsing the sections, but if somebody is getting into wine, explore this stuff, this is what they should be drinking. So zero to $20 a bottle. I think as a general, I think Vermentino is a great one from Italy. I think Laura Scaro has one that's from like Liguria or the Amalfi Coast. It's outrageous. It's so good. I think it's a great white wine that gives you textural components that you may find in say like Chardonnay, but is more mineral because it's from the coast. So I just really love that, that wine. Really versatile. And then a couple of South Africans. Um, I think Pinotage is crucial to mention because it is quite misunderstood. I think the younger producers today have done an incredible job of learning how to make the wine in a low alcohol, typically oak-free manner that you can like chill. So I have one in my book called Science of Sinai Atlanticus. It is from the a vineyard that is the closest to the uh, Atlantic in, in South Africa. And so there's like a, almost a salinity in the wine, but it's all stainless. It's like 11 and a half, 12% alcohol. And they drink it with a little chill. And it's like the most refreshing red, like all the red fruit of Pinot Noir, but this little tinge of bitterness from the Cinso that the cross is awesome stuff. And I think this is changing the narrative around Pinotage. So it's a fun one to also talk about and think about. And then the third would be a good Chenin Blanc, whether it's Loire Valley or or South Africa. It's like so versatile. Within a twenty dollars price point, you could have something that's bone dry to sparkling, still you know sweet to to dry to still. I think it really shows its place so well. And some of these old vine wines in South Africa that are like less than twenty bucks a bottle are are just epic. Zero to fifty a bottle. So I'd probably go up to up to a Barolo again. I think that. You can find like, for instance, Odero, probably village level, should be around 50 now. An amazing family sourced from some of the best crews in Barolo. And just even at like 50 bucks, it's insane value. Some amazing wine. Zero to 100. In my book, I have Luddite Wines. They've been in America before, but now work with, with me. Their Shiraz is 85. And I think it's legitimately one of the best Shiraz I've had. And I even tasted it against a Reyes. Um, their Fonsolet, I was really like enamored with how close to Rhone style his was, but also still had that like South African sun in it. It was, it's amazing one. Over a hundred, no limit. Latour. I hate to say it, but yeah, I, my last role I was in, um, I was doing a lot of Bordeaux trading. I've been to all the first growths. Very, very lucky. Latour is one of those wines that just it just sings and it there you can just see that the pedigree is like it's at another level it's such a great bottle of wine what is one book focused on beverage you think everyone should read kermit lynch uh, adventures on the wine route very influential on me i had several moments in my april trip where i kind of felt <laughs> like him in that book because he talks about renting a car and going winery to winery and like with a vision of what he wanted to do with Kermit Lynch. 
And he did it. And obviously the producers he brought in were the DRCs and like the Loire and like he brought in to Burgundy's that are now the, the best of the best. And obviously what I'm doing is I'm not Kermit Lynch, but like to feel this sense of like curiosity and exploration was was so amazing and one of like one of the highlights of my life. I remember kind of feeling that in a little way while reading his book as well. I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan, but not everybody is or was. Uh, if you were, is there an episode moment scene that still stands out to you about him? If you weren't, is there anybody else who's on TV, culinary personality, Emerald, Julia Child, Jacques Pepin, somebody who still stands out to you, you kind of gravitated towards when you were coming up through your career? Uh, no, Bourdain for sure, man. My brother also was a cooking school grad when he was at, out here in SF at California Culinary Academy. Bourdain came and did a book signing and he specifically my brother got a book signed and sent it to me like two months before I went to cooking school. A, because it was from my older brother, I would have read whatever he sent, but because it was that book in particular, it was like an immensely uh, impactful moment before I went to cooking school. So yeah, Bourdain all the way, man. He's, he's, he's amazing. So I would just say that moment of getting the book was, was really important. Where can people find you? Social media, website, plug everything. Yeah. So my website is culturewineco.com. And fortunately on all the socials, uh, it's all Culture Wine Co. is the handle. I spend more time on Instagram than anywhere else. I'll be doing some some videos on kind of like educational South African videos on there soon. And yeah, you can find me find me on Instagram at Culture Wine Co. And the wine club is active, right? So the wine club is once a month. Uh, it's two bottles with free shipping for sixty nine dollars. It I send a video, I record a video, and send out just a quick like three to five minute one on the two wines that are in it every month and try to kind of connect you. And eventually I'll bring in the producers in the videos and do like some fun kind of Q and A and just get them connected directly to the consumer. And I think one of the great highlights of the club or benefits is that if you add wines to it each month, they ship for free with, with the club itself. Yeah. I was going to mention that because, you know, we have a lot of people on and a lot of people have wine clubs, but fortunately everybody's approached it a little bit differently. And there's a little bit where I think before everybody was just like, yeah, we have wine club and we pick some bottles that we ship you and it's like 50 bucks or whatever. But like now people are adding stuff and like tinkering with it a little bit and kind of making it a little bit more of a unique experience where if you're a member of multiple wine clubs, you're still getting a different feel from each one that you've joined where you're not just feeling like, yep, my two bottles showed up. Where's this from? I don't remember which one this is from. That's pretty cool being able to add on and, and stuff like that too. So this was awesome. Thank you again for coming on and chatting about your career and Culture Wine Co. I've had a couple South Africa wines. They've all been great, the ones that I've had. But yeah, definitely looking forward to getting involved with the wine club and then also just kind of seeing you grow too as well and bring more stuff in. And and hopefully, you know, it is able to expand uh, and reach all the goals that you kind of have set for it. And yeah, it's just one of those kind of underserved, under like represented wine areas where you go through these exams and stuff and South Africa's one, you know, there's stuff that's happening in like China and little stuff in like Japan that nobody really talks about. And Mexico is kind of this wild West cause they have no real wine loss. Like everybody's like, I don't know if this is good or not. Like, so there's like these cool spots. Michigan is something that people have mentioned a lot where there's up and coming stuff there, but it's just like, it's hard to get it state to state depending on the licenses and then, Canada's got great wine, but they consume it all. So nobody ever gets access to it outside of Canada. Like, so there's all these little regions that nobody really knows about outside of, you know, France and, and Italy and Spain, and Napa and stuff. So yeah, super excited to see it kind of grow and uh, be following along. But 
If you ever need anything from us, don't hesitate to reach out. Always an open invitation. Come back on the podcast, whether you have something to plug for 15 minutes or what have you. But um, always want to support everyone that comes on as much as we can. So we'll try and reshare as much as we can on Instagram, different events and stuff, and keep all of our followers uh, aware of what's going on. So uh, if they're not directly following you or or miss something, because the algorithm is always changing too as well with how you have to operate on Instagram, which is annoying. But hopefully eventually somebody comes up with a new social media thing that's a little bit uh, like it was in the beginning with Instagram versus what it's kind of turned into. So yeah, I appreciate it. It's been, it's really been awesome to like recount a lot of the parts of Italy and things I haven't been thinking much about these days. So I appreciate it. And like, thanks for the opportunity. It's, it's been super fun. Big thanks again to Peter for coming on the podcast, uh, taking some time out of his day to jump on, talk about his career, South African wine, kind of his goal, aspirations with Culture Wine Co., launching it, um, all the challenges that have gone into that, and kind of where he sees things headed and his vision and everything. So again, you can follow him on Instagram at Peter underscore wine. Also follow Culture Wine Co. It's at Culture Wine Co. Visit culturewineco.com for the online shop, different kind of wine packs you know that are already put together and everything with a variety of different options different styles you can also join the wine club too as well remember promo code running from now through the end of january january 31st 2024 spoon mob 20 all caps that'll get you 20 percent off uh, from any wine purchases from culture wine co's online shop there so if you're looking to get some wine for Christmas or New Year's or whatever, you want to try some South African stuff or you're intrigued by what you heard or whatever, check out the website, check out the bottle shop, uh, get yourself 20% off there. So really cool of Peter to be able to offer that to any of the listeners who are interested. So again, follow us on Instagram at SpoonMob, check out the website SpoonMob.com and then follow or subscribe to the podcast, whatever platform that you use. Appreciate everybody who's been listening. Continue to help spread the word. If you're new here, welcome. If you've been here for a while, thank you for your continued support and listenership. Hope you guys have been enjoying the past few episodes. I know they've been a bit wine heavy. It's just been easier to connect and get wine-focused people on the podcast over the course of these last like two months. Once you get into kind of the fall, the harvest area, there's a lot of different chef collabs, chef dinners. Uh, some wine dinners and stuff like that. And everybody's calendar is pretty booked up. We've had a bunch of people scheduled, but they've had to just kind of push off with different staff members becoming sick. So they had to cover or just aren't really available based on scheduling until sometime in January and stuff. So we have a few more episodes to release. I think get to like 150 or 151. Uh, Then we'll drop the mailbag episode and then we'll take a little bit of a break, maybe like a month or so off. And then we'll do some recording uh, and with some people that we're kind of pushing to January here when they have availability. And then we'll start releasing those episodes again. We'll probably switch to a bi-weekly episode release. So instead of doing like 50 episodes a year, probably do around like 25, 26, something like that for next year is kind of the plan right now with just kind of spacing things out a little bit. It'll give people more time to consume the episodes, uh, not feeling like they have to be rushed because there's another one dropping on Thursday and they didn't finish the one that they were in because it was two and a half hours long and they didn't get to it and all this stuff. So we'll probably space it out a little bit, uh, try the kind of bi-weekly schedule for next year, see how that goes. It's possible we'll still have some kind of mini episodes that will drop in between. So you could have, you know, a string of three, four weeks where there's a new episode every week and it's just kind of new guest, mini episode, return guest, new new guest, mini episode, return guest, something like that might happen too as well. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, but that's kind of the plan for moving forward. So 
I think we'll have new episodes through maybe the second week, second Thursday of January, I think is when the mailbag will release. And then we'll probably just be off from like the middle of January through the middle of February or so. Still do some stuff on Instagram and whatnot. We're going to schedule and do some recording and everything, get some episodes recorded in the can and editing and stuff in that process, and then start releasing those things out on a bi-weekly schedule moving forward. So that's the big update, but want to give everybody just a quick update and reminder as to what we're doing and everything. Appreciate everybody, as always, who's been listening. Continue to you know write in feedback, questions, comments, recommendations too as well. You can either reach us through the contact portal on the website or through email spoonmob.yahoo.com. But otherwise, hope everybody has a great Christmas and holiday here. And we will talk to you guys next week on Thursday.